Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 27th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The government continues to field questions about the National Broadband Plan and its ability to bring modern life to rural Ireland, delivering broadband to 500,000 homes. This is despite the government saying it's now ready to move to the next phase on foot of the Smith report. Peter Smith concluded that as Minister Dennis Nocton did not influence or seek to influence the conduct of the tender process in favour of the last remaining bidder Granahan McCourt Capital. Yesterday the Taoiseach told the Dáil that the department is now evaluating uh, the bid with the help of KPMG and some other external experts and uh, that they anticipate that the government will be able to make a decision in the coming weeks as to whether they can accept that Tender. Let's talk about this now with Sinn Féin's spokesperson on communications, Brian Stanley. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Good morning, Mike. As we've been hearing, there's opposition. The Taoiseach also said yesterday that raises questions for him and what the motivations of the opposition are. Is it to undermine the process? Well, we've been trying to get the broadband, national broadband plan in place uh, since 2012, Mike. And we put forward suggestions in 2012 as to how that should be done. Um, the government went a different route with it. Uh, I believe they've run into a, a very difficult position. They put themselves into a very difficult position. Um, you know, you started out. I mean, you started out with, with three three main bidders for this. You had ESB, you had Air, and you had uh, what was called Enet at the time. Um, all of them have now gone. All of them, and uh, what's it's left hanging on uh, one bidder uh, who joined the Enet consortium and who is now on his own, uh, and that's the, that's the Grenadine and McCourt consortium. So there's one American venture capitalist firm uh, still in the race, and the future of the Irish uh, national broadband plan is in the hands of that American venture capitalist. Well, not in the view of the government. Uh, the Taoiseach said yesterday that this is not a, a new consortium. The composition has changed, but it, it's uh, the original bidder. 
Well, you see, a view is one thing, but I, I, like to deal in, I like to deal in realities, and that's what Sinn Féin likes to deal in. The facts are is, is that the, the, um, uh, the minister then... Well, to use the analogy that Taoiseach used yesterday no. about Fianna Fáil, Gerry Adams used to be the leader of uh, Sinn Féin. He's not now, but even under Mary Lou Macdonald, you continue to be Sinn Féin. It's a, a little no, bit the same as the, this consortium. Yeah, but, it, but it's not as if the whole, the whole entity has changed. You know, one person can change... But the whole entity, I mean, the bidders that were originally there are not there any longer. The facts are is that we're dealing with a situation now where the previous minister, Dennis Nocton, met, uh, met that one bidder on a number of occasions, which he shouldn't have been even, he breached department rules by doing that. We have a report back now, a report tra- drafted by a civil servant, David Smith, uh, not, by a, not by a legal expert. Um, and the key questions around this, you know, was the, was the process compromised? Um, he has come back with a report that's a very ambivalent, to say the least. Um, I have extracts of it here in front of me. And I mean, the big questions around this, uh, um, Mike, is this, is that um, did, the, did the attorney's re- uh, uh, general's review of this report, which he's the law expert, right, did it consist of commercially, just commercial uh, confidentiality, or did, or did the review uh, to, um, to see how this, the state might be legally uh, le- left open to a challenge, and that's, uh, you know, from my understanding... It's so, 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 so you're rejecting Peter Smith's uh, review? No, I'm saying that... Uh, well, he's uh, found otherwise, hasn't he? He's no, found... no, hold on for a second. If you just look at what mm-hmm. he actually says, he says, I mean, he talks about the absence of formal minutes for meetings, uh, for two meetings. There's no verification of what happened at that. Um, he said that he also went on to say it, and I quote, I cannot unequivocally state that the state-led intervention under the National Broadband Plan was not discussed at those meetings between the former minister and the court. Now, to think, uh, outside of the procurement process, unquote, now, to think that they met and discussed, uh, or, you know, that they met so many times, uh, you know, in, in the intervening period, including when there was other bidders still in the race, and this was never discussed, well, I mean, it, that's a bit of a flight of fancy. Uh, and we believe that this still leaves the way open for one of the other bidders, the original bidders, to take a case against the state, uh, on what second, basis? On what basis, though? Because, well, I mean, what Peter Smith basis, has been saying uh, was sorry, that they weren't on, in a position to do that. On even. the basis, first of all, that it breached, it breached procurement rules. That's the first thing. It breached procurement rules. Yes, but the minister um, resigned, uh, and that the minister, insulated the, minister, the process. The minister, just hold on a second. The minister resigned, but the fact there is, is that, that with one bidder in the race, and if you look at this for a second, this, this has left legally, uh, open to legal challenge number one, that's the first problem. The second problem is, is there's a financial problem here with this. This started out as a half billion project. We're now hearing figures of three billion. And the facts are, is that it, that's, that's been left like this. And I've pointed out this consistently over the last two and a half years because, because of the tender and process and how it's constructed and how they've gone about it. And the credibility of the tender is, is, uh, is that is, there's, there's a huge issue around that. Mm. So legally and financially and on the credibility of the tender. And the problem with the credibility of the tender, we keep getting told that this is, this is supposed to be some kind of competitive tender. This is not a competitive tender. If the only person running the race is Mike Reid, Mike, Mike Reid is going to win the race. Well, there's even always if, one at the end of the race. Even, and that's even, the if, he do, even mm. if he doesn't come in, even if it takes him an hour mm. to run half a well, mile, well, you're still going to win the race because there is only one tender and that, that bidder holds all the cards. Plus to that, mm. the process was fatally flawed by the fact that Dennis Nocton signed off on, a, on allowing air to cherry-pick the easiest-to-reach 300,000 households because there was 840,000 households and premises in the plan. 
Air came in a year and a half ago and the minister signed off and allowed them to pick the easiest to reach ones. And what I mean by that for your listeners is mm. they got the villages, mm. they got the ribbon developments where there was groups of 10 and 12 and 30 houses in the countryside. They got those ones because they were the most commercially um, easiest to reach and most, you know, they were the most viable and the most profitable to reach. So the easiest to reach ones have been pulled out of this, Mike. Mm. So legally this has been left open to challenge, right? And this, this is what we need to clear up next week with the minister when he comes in. And I wrote to him three weeks ago about this. But, uh, the day he took over his position, Minister Bruton, I wrote to him about this, that he needs to come in and explain this in the doll. The financial position, you and your listeners, the taxpayer, what bill are we facing here? The length of time as well, there's a question. Yeah, well, the, conclu- the, the conclusion the government appears to have come to is uh, that as a result of Peter Smith's findings, a legal challenge will fail. Uh, and when you talk about the tender process, Granahan Court Capital is in that process. It hasn't won the tender yet. But the, the problem is, is there's nobody else can win it. Yes, but it may and, not and win the, the tender. The, the, the minute the, the Taoiseach has left it open, he has said that if it's successful, the whole thing may collapse yet. The, that's the other issue as well is, is that the government does not have a plan B. And I keep, I've kept asking Dennis Nocton this, have we a plan B? And what, what is your plan B? Because well, you're, 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 very, you're very, very straightforward. You're, 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 we but actually, but we you are want, suggesting that Granahan McCourt shouldn't be given the tender, are you? What, what we put forward, well, and I, just allow me to answer that question, right? What we need to clarify, first of all, if, if they're going to proceed with this, we need to be absolutely crystal clear that legally this is sound. And the problem is, is because of no minutes of those meetings, because the, because the former minister met so many times with McCord mm. during the tendering process at key points when he should never have met him, that has left it open to legal challenge. I can't say for definite that that will happen, but it has left a way open for that. The financial position... I mean, what exactly is the cost of this to the taxpayer? Is it half a billion? Is it two and a half billion? You don't know and I don't know. I've tried to get an answer to that uh, several times on the Dáil record and outside of the Dáil, outside of the formal setting of the Dáil. The credibility of the tender, one bidder in the race is not a competitive tender. And the timeline, Mike, don't forget that the the government's programme for government said that the high-speed broadband fibre broadband would be delivered to every home and every premises in the state by 2020. That is 13 months away. 13 months away. My God, sure. I mean, the tender hasn't even been signed yet. And by the way, you mentioned that the opening the show that they've brought in KPMG now. Um, 80, 80 civil servants and consultants have been working on this for the last couple of years because I, got, I eventually got that out of the minister, the previous minister, in answers to all questions. 80 people have been working on this. This is a legal logistical and financial nightmare how they've gone about it. And I'll tell you what, mm. tell you what we were, suggest. Report, oh, sorry, well, sorry, just before you do it, there were reports yesterday that this could be rolled out next year, uh, at the beginning of next year. And for the 500,000 people who are living in the dark ages as we speak, that's what they're interested in. And that's, and that's what we want to see. So we must make sure that this is legally sound. We must get some indication of the financial position. And we must hear as well a timeline uh, in terms of the rollout of it. It won't happen by 2020, and we all want that to happen. If it collapses, and the Taoiseach indicated that may that it may fall flat, on, uh, uh, the whole process may collapse. He did indicate that. Uh, so if it does collapse, the government needs a plan B. Uh, I've said this to him consistently over the last couple of years, we need to have that. We suggested very, very strongly, six years ago, all of six years ago, Sinn Féin uh, put forward the idea that, uh, that this would be rolled out right across the ESB network. 
DSB were involved in it. DSB does have a poll going to every house. Mm. Uh, uh, this is common practice. We already have some broad Is it common gear. practice? Because uh, I was listening to Michael Fitzmaurice argue against that the other night and saying that it's not possible that you would have to work on every single poll in the country and you'd have to recruit in the region of 4,000 engineers. The cost would be oh. astronomical. No, absolutely not. There's already some broadband cables hanging on, uh, on, on, on the electricity network, and it has been done in other countries. And can I just say this to you? What we also suggested was that there's what's called a man system. In 94 metropolitan area networks, in other words, 94 provincial towns, there's a, there's a huge um, broadband network, and there's a huge system service in that. And there's what's called a backhaul system. In other words, there's huge broadband cables running across the state. I look for the maps of this three years ago and we got them to see where the broadband cables were in the country and there's a very extensive system of broadband cables underground broadband cables and overhead running right and right across this state that along with the man system and dsb network that was how this system should be rolled out all of that is in public ownership now since the government bought enet which is running the man system they bought out the final share in that uh, a month and a half ago that is, the, that is the infrastructure that this should have been rolled out on. The problem is now, mm. is that they're caught now in a situation that they've heard of only one bidder, Granahan McCord. Okay, your word, against. they're caught. So you're, caught. you're, so, so you're suggesting to go back to the drawing book? No, I'm suggesting that, it, that we should proceed with this one if we can, but I think there's huge question marks over it. I have huge doubts over it because, Mike, you see, I want to see this rolled out because the constituency I represent, I have thousands of people who are driving to Dublin every day out of this constituency in the early Shoffley who shouldn't be driving out of the county, who could work from home or who could work from a small office in their own local town. So we need this. We need this yesterday. So, you know, we don't want to slow down this process, but there are questions around the legal situation with this, the financial position and the whole credibility of the tendering process. Do we need it, though, when we see people out in the islands working off uh, 5G and that sort of thing? Well, the expert, I've, gone, I've met everybody uh, in the industry. Uh, when I say everybody in the industry, all of the kind of the main players over the last number of years since I got this brief, which in fame, uh, and all of them, all of the expert opinion that we can... And we've listened to them all, even though, you know, people who have opposing views. And from what we can decipher out of that, Mike, is, is that, yes, we do need fibre. And the best answer I can give it to you is this, is that we need fibre at least to the, the last mile or the last half mile. Uh, if you live up a laneway and there's four houses up it, uh, it may be OK to get fibre maybe to the end of the laneway or the Boreen. But, uh, and you may be able to send a signal, you know, for the last quarter or a half a mile. That's what we're being told. But you certainly do need an extensive network of fibre across the state. And we don't have it. We're not, you know, we haven't moved in to the 21st century with this. And I'm, I'm saying this to you honestly. We put forward that position in 2012 mm. because our party, Sinn Féin, we desperately want to see this rolled out for rural development, for jobs, and to keep people working you know, in, in the regions around the country. And what about the cost? What about this cost of €3 billion? Euro? The Taoiseach was saying, uh, well, God knows what it'll turn out to be. It could be, uh, I think the estimates are between €500 million and €3 billion. Uh, but it, it, no matter what it is, it'll be paid out over 30 years. Well, you guys in the media are very easy on Fine Gael and Taoiseach and other parties. If we put forward... <laughs> Tell Fine Gael that, yeah, please. <laughs> if we put forward, if Sinn Féin come up with something like that, 
you can imagine what uh, what what uh, the questions will be asked on radio shows. And the government have got away with this. Well, the I government mean, hasn't come up with this. The Sunday Times, I think, came up with the three is, billion figure, is, uh, and is, the government is. has said that they can't uh, put a, a cost on it because they haven't uh, received uh, or uh, assessed the application as yet. It's based on leaks, and I can tell you yes. that Granahan and McCourt. Uh, a lot of the, this this process has been in jeopardy mm. uh, a number of times. Hence the reason for all the meetings between um, yeah. the former De- minister and Dennis Nocton in June said to David McCourt, yes. three billion is too much according yes. to those leaks." Uh, and you're 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 giving out about uh, meeting David McCourt, and you're saying that the government should be saying, but "Don't don't look for three billion," which he did. There are officials in the department that this role is designated, uh, and under department rules, the minister should not meet. The, the main bidder in that case. The minister should not be meeting bidders. It's as simple well, as he, that. He'd 18 meetings uh, with that bidder, but 40 meetings with bidders overall. The point is is that he met him at the, at the point of where the game was on, where this was entering crucial phases, and it breaches department rules. This is black and white, Mike. Mm. There's no ifs or buts about this. But three and billion is too much, is it? Three, but the, 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 see, it may cost three billion, but the problem is, is that that's based on leaks, and you know that working in the media, and I know it as well. That's based on leaks from from the department and from officials and from you know uh, kind of sideways briefings, so as to get the word out there to condition the people for this. This no one knows the cost of this except the senior people in the department who are dealing with it, the former minister and the new minister coming in. But the public need to have some idea, and as a, as a public representative, I need to have some explanation. For, for people and as front, front bench spokesperson for Sinn Féin on this but we haven't been able to get this off the department so you know we're literally being mm-hmm. handed a bloody checkbook and told sign a blank check and you know Granite and McCourt or someone else is filling the vigour over on the right hand side of the checkbook or of the check I mean that's, that's totally un, it's totally unacceptable uh, have, you, have you seen uh, the Irish Examiner this morning uh, Daniel McConnell has a, a story about uh, a meeting a dinner that took place in New York where Dennis Dockton met with David McCourt and obviously there were other people at that meeting and uh, there was a WhatsApp conversation uh, that the Irish Examiner has had sight of uh, through freedom of information requests. Uh, Apparently the conversation was full of emojis and that sort of uh, thing and they were all very familiar it would seem uh, according to the article with each other and uh, telling uh, Minister Nocton as he was uh, at the time uh, that Mr McCourt was at the building. The quote if I can find it here, is David already there and said, ask for him at the door. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I suppose that underlines, the whole, the whole charade undermines the cosy relationship between big business in this country and ministers and senior politicians that at crucial points, you know, we've had this before with the, with the mobile phone licence. We had a huge inquiry that cost tens of millions of euros. You'll be familiar with all of that. And we know what came out of that. Nobody's ever been prosecuted on the back of it. And the, the taxpayer is picking up the bill time and time again for this. What we want to see, with, uh, what we want to see, Mike, is this. We want to see wires being strung along poles, connections being met to houses. Instead of that, we get tied up for years in this endless process. I mean, the cost even of the tendering process is running at this stage into, I would guess, into tens of millions of euros. I mean, I would estimate that there's a hay shed full of paper, you know, uh, stacked on pallets, uh, or the equivalent to that, mm. in terms of the tender and documents. Because this, we've looked at this in, fair, in, in fairly good detail. And, uh, you know, this is a legal and financial nightmare. And it, logistically, it's a nightmare because they now have, whoever gets the tender, the state now has to build in a subsidy 
you and that your listeners has to pay a subsidy and wait for this one of 20 euros it's estimated at 20 euros per pole to hang a cable on poles belonging to air and air was remember a state company mm. that is now owned by one french venture capitalist and the cables will be strung along those poles and you the, you and the taxpayers of loud and the taxpayers of lee shoffley and everywhere else will subsidize that to hang wires on poles that they actually had to have erected when the taxpayer and the workers in air in the 1990s invested heavily in air but ended up subsequently sold off by Fianna Fáil. So we're caught, that's the situation we're caught in. But okay. at least we have the ESB network if, and there should be a plan B there. Uh, I hope that this does install this process. I hope that it's not legally compromised. I hope that financially that we get some straight answers. I hope that the Minister can put some credibility back into the tendering process. Um, and if this nonsense about that, that we'll have fibre at every house up every Boreen by 2020 which is 13 months away that we get away from that nonsense and we start getting realistic answers from the Minister next week and if it does okay. if this does fail I want to hear do they have a plan B okay. the previous Minister was never able to tell me that he has we have we hope we don't need it Thank you indeed for joining Thank us this might. morning Sinn Féin's spokesperson on communications Brian Stanley is a TD for Lee Shoffley Michael Reed on LMFM. Airgrid's credibility on the North-South interconnector has been blown to pieces, according to Independent TD in Mead West, Padertobin. It's because of a finding in the 2018 Annual Generation Capacity Statement that there will be a surplus of energy in Northern Ireland for the next decade. Over the last number of years, uh, we have been told that obviously there is an emergency situation with regard to electricity on the island of Ireland, especially in the north of Ireland. And, you know, through all the court cases that have happened, through all of the the hearings that have happened, all of the planning uh, processes that have happened, we've been told that unless the north side interconnector is going to be built in its current form, the lights were going to go out in the north of Ireland. And people went as far as to say that there would be uh, a risk to life and limb uh, if they proceed, if this wasn't proceeded with, mm. and of course this uh, mantra was then accepted by the, I suppose a lot of the organisations uh, in the north and the south, people like IBEC were repeating those sentences, and everybody was in fear <clears throat> that we were going to go off a cliff with regards uh, energy generation supply in the north of Ireland, especially. Now, interestingly enough, obviously there has been an annual electricity generation report. And that report in 2017 said that there was going to be a deficit still within the market in the north. So in other words, unless capacity was increased through the north-south interconnector, that the north was still going to be in trouble. But the 2018 annual report um, flips that on its head completely and says, in actual fact, rather than a deficit of supply of electricity in the north, there was going to be a surplus of electricity in the north. And the surplus they quoted was 480 megawatts. <clears throat> now, people might not understand no, what megawatts yeah, are. Exactly, yeah. But mm. what I will say is the, the difference between the 2017 report and 2018 report is nearly half the size of the capacity of the, the market in the north of Ireland. So that puts massive questions with regards to this particular project. Mm. The question arises, is this an over-engineered project? Are we building something that has far too much capacity and, and no needs? And secondly, puts the question, if so, is there a, a, an extra cost being put onto the state that doesn't have to be spent? And could, could actually we build maybe a, an underground north-south interconnector with a lower capacity that would fulfil 
any supply issue problems into the future. Yeah, but it doesn't actually put the, the issue to bed, does it? Uh, in that there are other aspects to this. Uh, I mean, on an all-island basis, I think this report suggests that demand is going to increase by between 15 and 47 percent. It, it, for, for sure, it doesn't put it to bed on an all-Ireland basis. But what it does, it puts the, the major impetus for the north-south interconnector was the issue in the north of Ireland. Uh, so that they could have the necessary supply. Now, obviously, you mentioned increasing demand, and increasing demand is, is something that we're likely to see. But I had the, the opportunity to visit the, the, the national operators of the Belgian grid recently. And one of the, the figures that stuck out in my head at the time was they showed us the level of capacity that was necessary within their grid over the coming years. And actually, while demand was remaining either static or increasing during that period of time, the capacity necessary in the grid was actually falling. And I asked them the question, why is that? And they said, well, in the future, generation of electricity, because of global warming, etc., is going to be uh, more influenced by micro-generation. Mm. So this is the case where electricity is more likely to be generated in the location of its consumption. So in other words, you don't need massive infrastructure to transport the electricity hundreds of miles in that scenario mm. because people will be using solar panels, people will be using uh, biodigesters, people will be using well, uh, small-scale wind turbines, etc., to well, make sure that energy is created locally. Therein lies the question, doesn't it? Uh, because uh, they're talking uh, about electricity generators on barges in the Irish Sea to power Northern Ireland in the event of a, a no-deal Brexit. So uh, they're not uh, suggesting that you could shore up the gap by using solar panels, uh, so you've got to get the power from the south. What what we're saying at the moment is that, and this is the most up-to-date electricity generation report for the north, we're saying that the north will We'll have a surplus. Yes, uh, but that's based on the electricity coming from the south, isn't it? It, It's it's based on the the electricity coming from the south Mm. and the electricity that's generated in the north. But if you have an oversupply in the market, well, then that logically tells you there's a opportunity to reduce the supply into that market. And what the government is, is, is proposing for the last nearly 12 years at this stage, and I remember that this project was developed and uh, in its conception at a time where understanding of supply and generation of electricity in a new um, climate change environment mm. wasn't where it is at, the, at, at today. So what I'll be calling for, for the government now to actually carry out a review with regards to the development of this particular project. Because Why though? I mean, the argument really doesn't seem very strong. Yes, there'll be an oversupply of electricity coming from the south. So how do you get it from the south to the north? There's a question of stability of supply. And then there's a question of durability, because uh, this is not a project that's meant to supply electricity over the next two or three years. This undoubtedly will last for decades. Well, first of all, this, the electricity generation report is a 10-year uh, long estimation and a projection with regards to electricity needs. Yes, and, but the North-South interconnector and, is designed to provide it, power for, what, 20, 30, 40 years? But it, it, also, it also states that there will be an oversupply in the, even the highest estimation of electricity consumed in the North of Ireland. But the reason why this is so critical, Michael, is mm. because there are 409 pylons up to 51 metres high carrying 400,000 volts mm. through Meath, Cavan, Monaghan, Armagh and Tyrone. Some of them will be at a distance of about 13 metres mm. from people's homes. 
Now, there are real fears out there with regards health. There are massive fears with regards the value to homes, mm. farms and businesses. Oh, no, and I understand that. And they're different arguments. In <clears throat> terms of this argument, though, I'm not sure if it stands up. And one of the reasons, as I say, is uh, that uh, that supply could increase in time to come. But even if it doesn't, if the North-South connector, uh, interconnector is supplying the North with power from the South in 80 years from now, uh, and there's still a surplus of supply, how do you get it there? You need stability of supply. No, no, it's not a different argument. The the argument with regards to the costs of this project is very, very central to the delivery of this project because, obviously, every project that you're involved in Mm. will have a cost-benefit analysis. And, obviously, when you're developing a particular project, you have to look at, yes, the construction costs, but, obviously, the 12-year delay costs and all of the legal uh, costs that brings on to the state. Mm. But, yes, you have to actually cost the, the drop in the value of homes, farms, businesses, and the damage it does to tourism and and agriculture. And what you want to do is you want to meet the two objectives as possible. Yes, you want to create a secure supply situation. Now, the the latest, most technical projections available to us show that, uh, as far as the eye can see, that it will be possible to actually meet the needs of the North to create security of supply with a smaller piece of infrastructure. And, you know, for us at this stage, not to reanalyze the um, the over-engineering that exists in the north-south interconnector would be a mistake. Now, the government themselves put the brakes on a number of different projects in the rest of the country. And, you know, if they thought it was logical to see reductions in capacity in the west and in the south, it, it, very much we need to actually start to analyze the, the needs for the capacity that's been de- generated through the north-south interconnector. Listen, I'm an All mm. Ireland market uh, person. I want to see an All Ireland market, energy yeah. market. But do you I'm want to see? Do you want to no see generators on barges? Uh, because uh, I mean, if uh, you overwork these lines uh, and they end up failing, which uh, I gather is one of the reasons for upgrading this particular system, uh, well, then that's exactly what you're going to end up with. Well, first of all, um, the idea that we would have generators on barges. I don't think it's a real, is a real issue. Considering the fact that we, we now know that there is oversupply in that market, you're really suggesting a supply mechanism for a, a, a situation that is not really likely at all within current projections. Well, and it's because fact, if Northern current, Ireland cannot generate its own power, and that's the scenario that the British no, government has presented all, in the event the, the of the a, a no-deal scenario the, and the all-island electricity market collapses. To be honest, the idea that the north of Ireland won't be able to create its own power in the future is a nonsense. The north of Ireland is a, a Western first world um, economy. And in the future, we can actually build the necessary power generation mm-hmm. infrastructure in the north to achieve it. And there's no doubt in my mind that we are moving towards a, a low carbon um, electricity generation sector. And that low carbon generation needs a lot more microgeneration, and right across the, the, the north and the south, we're going to see a massive increase in solar power generation. Right now, on, on, in the south of Ireland, mm, there is no solar it, farm that's actually connected into the grid at all. As we now, speak, it's not speak, a relevant but, argument. But, but l- l- let mm. me finish this point. Mm. In Britain, right now, solar power creates more electricity than gas. Uh, coal okay. and nuclear but from the from the months of March to September. I, I think you agree. I think you'd probably agree. Here. That's a, an argument for ten years from now. It's not a, an argument. Well, not for really, today. because. 
finally, uh, the previous Minister for the Environment, Dennis Nocton, has actually agreed on a new feed-in tariff um, space for solar energy. So we're actually going to see the first solar farms being plugged in in 2019. And, you know, countries like Germany and Britain, who are on the same latitude as us, create significant portions in it now of their energy markets uh, through solar power. There's a development on, on offshore electricity generation that's going to be radical. We're going to see out on, uh, in the Dundalk Bay a, a massive offshore wind turbine farm very shortly. We're going to see the same on the Arklow Bank off, uh, off Wicklow. There is, there is, we are in a period of radical change with regards power generation. And this change was not envisaged 12 years ago when the north-south interconnector was planned. And the second aspect to this is I believe as well that there is going to be a lot of work done on energy efficiency and ele electricity efficiencies in the future, which I hope will help to put the brake on the demand increases with regards to electricity okay. generation. Well, time because will tell, and in time, if we, if that may if feed into it, the current debate. If we don't do it, there is a serious threat to um, global warming in this. This year was the first year in four years where there was an increase in the level of carbon created by society. It is the biggest humanitarian threat existing in, in the world. And if we don't make sure we get it right on that level, we're all going to be in trouble. All right, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, Michael. Independent TD for Mead West, Peter Tobin, speaking to me before we came on air today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to the killing of a 47-year-old man as he finished up at work and was sitting in his car in County Monaghan yesterday. We're joined by Michael Doyle, news reporter with uh, the Irish Sun. Good morning to you, Michael, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, he was uh, a delivery man and uh, tributes, as you report uh, this morning, being paid to Stephen Marin. Uh, an unbelievable story. Uh, this happened after a, a guarded chase after a suspect. Uh, who was wanted on some other crimes. That's right, yeah. It's, a, it's an incredibly tragic story, but this man from Northern Ireland, from Keedy in South Armagh, seems to have gone into the Garda station in Castle Blaney on, on Tuesday night. We're, not, we're still unclear what, what his reasoning was for going into the station, but he was recognised by one of the officers there for uh, as being somebody who was wanted in connection with, uh, with a number of separate offences. Um, the, the man then to Northern Ireland and left the Garda station. He got into his Audi car, and the, the guard, the guard of Michael Zevlin was the name of the officer, went after him. He tried to take the, the keys out of the ignition. The two of them struggled. The car then drove, drove down the road with the pair of them struggling in the front. And, and, and as, as, you, as you may have heard, as everybody heard, then it, it, it tragically crashed into the back of uh, Stephen Marin's car as he waited to finish his shift. And at high speed, I take it? It was at very high speed. Well, I mean, you, you've been watching footage of it. Some some CCTV footage has circulated since yesterday, and, and and you can kind of get you get an impression of how fast the car was going. It it it, it came round the corner slowly, and then it seems that the foot must have gone down the accelerator because it kind of really hit the back of his car at some pace. He went then he went through a lamppost and came to a stop before the guardie appeared on the scene and, and managed to arrest him. Uh, and you've been talking to a, a local man, Kevin Mullen, who recorded this. Uh, it must have been all the more shocking to him, uh, given that he, he'd have known Stephen. He did, yeah. He, he was actually said he told me he was speaking to him the previous day, and he said he was in good form. He was with his young daughter. And uh, he had CCTV cameras mounted on his house, and it's only a few yards away from where the, where the accident took place. He said he was uh, somebody who used to be in the Army Rangers, so he was quite security conscious. And, and he was actually watching the footage unfold as, uh, as it happened. And, and he was 
quite quite upset and quite shaken as such, but he was, but he was happy to speak for a few minutes and, and tell us what kind of man Stephen was. Is it, is it possible to describe the bravery of Guard Devlin? Certainly, I mean, um, I think it's been it's almost been lost in in, um, in in everything that's happened since then because obviously the, the debt has taken over and that, what have you. But he certainly he certainly seems to have really put his life on the line by by going for this for for going for this for this man. And tributes were paid to him yesterday. And now, thankfully, he he walked away from the accident with just head and leg and facial injuries injuries and was the stairs in the hospital yesterday. But certainly, he showed incredible bravery to, to tackle this man from Northern Ireland while he was trying to drive away. Uh, and I, I take it as, uh, that other people would have witnessed this happen. It happened at about 20 past 11, so it was still, I mean, if you can see from the video, there was still a bit of activity on the street. There was still a number of lights. I think they only put up the Christmas tree lights there a couple of days ago. And there were other cars on the road, and certainly there seems to have been a bit, but at least a dozen people, I think, will have witnessed the accident take place. Uh, I think there's uh, one woman who's also been commended for her bravery as well, uh, uh, following on uh, from uh, the story uh, uh, as it continues uh, to uh, emerge. Uh, the guard was hospitalised, but he's doing well, you say? He is. He's doing well. He, as I said, he only had kind of cosmetic injuries to his head, his, his face, and, and legs, and he, he he walked away from the accident. It shows, but he was discharged from hospital yesterday with with relatively minor injuries. And a, a man under arrest, obviously, since uh, and undoubtedly uh, the uh, courts will be hearing about this. Absolutely. I mean, this man was wanted in connection with a number of other offences. He's a number of previous convictions for assault and criminal damage, and he's still in custody at this, at this time in Carbon Cross Garda Station, and, and, and we'll know in due course if charges are to follow. Really remarkable stuff. Michael, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Michael Doyle, news reporter with uh, The Irish Sun. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Ronnie from Kells phoned in in relation to broadband and says that there are there are now satellites that can be put up that could cover the whole country. He says we are already behind. All we need to do is piggyback with some other satellites that is covering Europe. The idea of putting wires all around the place is crazy at this stage. You can put up as many satellites as you want and they would cover every hole and cranny in Ireland and need very little maintenance. Ronnie maintains that a little bit of common sense is needed. God, I think uh, you could earn a lot of money off the Irish government if uh, you could apply that common sense, Ronnie. Uh, Helen from County Meath also contacted us and says that this broadband rollout has been beset with problems from the word go. Wonders why is this? Why can things in Ireland not just be straightforward and done simply? Mm. Just don't understand it. All the hullabaloo, says Helen. Yeah, well, I mean, it is a little bit difficult to understand. Uh, National government decides... uh, to do something like this uh, and it really is what you'd expect of any government in the Western world these days. Uh, They say they'll make the money available and uh, contract it out uh, in the way that they've uh, proposed and uh, for some reason it just doesn't fall into place. Just going to a different topic altogether, Michael, we had Cora Sherlock on yesterday discussing the abortion legislation mm, and amendment. the pro-life campaign. That's yes, correct. Yeah. And mm-hmm. with a couple of comments in relation to that, Tony from County Louds got in touch to say, Michael, I find your attitude to the person arguing for pro-life to be appalling. To say why bother administrating pain relief to what is a human being, especially in late stage pregnancy, is beyond condemnation, especially since you did it in such a glib way. 
I firmly believe that a lot of yes voters were not in full possession of the facts. It's nice to know you can be so casual about human life here whilst showing concern about migrants and refugees that we owe nothing to, but you dismiss your own potential citizens so readily. What Minister Harris did not want to publicise was the fact that perfectly healthy babies will be part of this scheme and the inhumane procedure in ending those lives, especially in late stage pregnancy. I most certainly do not want my taxes spent in such a way. Okay, well, that's uh, democracy, uh, I think, uh, was uh, the main argument I was putting forward yesterday. The referendum has been held. The people have voted. I would imagine the people aren't stupid and they knew what they were voting for. And that's the outcome. Another listener text, seriously, Michael, can you really compare a baby's life to a lotto ticket? Can I? No, No, of course not. No, no. I was uh, comparing uh, news agents, uh, I think, uh, to uh, a GP uh, who said that they didn't want to provide a service uh, and were making a moral argument against providing that service. Uh, you'd expect that the news agents would refer somebody up the street to another news agent that sold a lottery ticket. OK, well, there was a few people that got in touch that mm. took exception to that. Patricia NRD says that the new legislation she feels is too black and white. I voted no. My voice was not strong enough to protect the life of the babies who now have no value. Need to safeguard that babies who survive the procedure that they do not suffer pain. If an animal was in pain, you'd seek help. Why not a human life or do they not count? So that's her thoughts on okay. it. Um, another listener says that not everybody wants their taxes paid to end human life and that this should be a consideration. Mm. However, we had a caller from Dundalk who phoned in and said that um, we voted to bring in this legislation and therefore that tax money should be used to pay for procedures just the same as any other procedure in the health service. Yeah, well, I suppose, uh, you know, we make these decisions collectively uh, and whether you were on the winning side of the argument or not, it's a collective decision and uh, the majority who voted in favour of repealing the 8th have uh, left us in this situation. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. 
Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Where democracy dictates uh, that we introduce uh, abortion legislation, and that's what the government is intent on doing. And as a result of that, the government is saying that they'll make it uh, available through the public health system, that the public purse will pay for it. Uh, and the argument mm. that I was putting forward yesterday was that, you know, there's a lot of people who don't want children and don't want their taxes to go towards education, just as yes. a, an example. You know, yes. But uh, collectively, we've decided that that is the case. Liam says, Minister Harris can't make the health service work as it is. We must, uh, we must ask why is he putting so much effort and resources into abortion. Well, I think the Minister would argue with the first point. Geraldine phoned in from North County Dublin to say that what really annoys her about Ireland is that we voted in this legislation and yet you still have those who voted against it trying to delay it at every corner. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe so. Uh, those uh, who are opposed to it say they're not trying to delay it unnecessarily. Just in relation then, moving to the discussion on quad bikes with uh, Jeopardy Melda Munster yesterday, mm-hmm. Shane contacted us to say that we don't need all the dramatics about potential crashes and life-threatening industry or injuries to display scramblers in a bad light. The sheer noise of them alone causes anxiety in older people living in housing estates. They are a scourge on local communities. Mm, and it causes Shane anxiety says. in old people sitting in radio studios as well. <laughs> I'm looking at one, is yeah, that what you're saying? Exactly, yeah. yeah that's the point. Uh, mm. Maeve says that it's good to see the Gardaí being preventative in relation to quad bikes and being active in trying to steer parents away from allowing their children to ask for them for Christmas because it can be too late after it's done. Well, it certainly was uh, too late for four people uh, who came to their demise, four people who lost their lives in uh, the last four years and uh, in around uh, 40 accidents in the same period, if I remember correctly. We had Matthew uh, McGeehan on yesterday from the IFA Rural mm. Development and he uh, we, we had a, a text in from Paddy in relation to that interview and just saying that not sure if it's a problem with stray dogs in relation to these attacks. Paddy points out that the number of foxes have got out of control over the last number of years and feels it's long after time that the IFA got the bounty back on them and work with gun clubs across the country. Okay, maybe that's it. Uh, I don't think uh, the IFA thinks it's foxes. They think that uh, it may be stray dogs, but uh, I don't think the IFA is putting it down to stray dogs. Uh, I think they're saying that the problems are for two reasons. One, that dogs aren't locked up by their owners and uh, they're out and about whether you call that a stray dog or not, I don't think. Uh, but uh, the other is uh, that walkers are letting them off the lead. We had Sheena Horgan of Drinkware on yesterday and in response to that, uh, Colette got in touch to say that regarding drink driving, people need to be particularly wary about the glass size that's used, especially in restaurants, Michael. I don't know if you notice, but if you drink wine, the glasses vary in sizes and can be huge. So, you know, you can't just say a glass. You have to really check the size of the glass. Mm. And also, if you are entertaining at 
home or being entertained in someone else's house, it's very easy to drink larger measures than usual. Yeah, well, if you're going to uh, drink and you're going to drive today or tomorrow, I suppose you need to to educate yourself in terms of what a a unit is. And uh, I think uh, in terms of wine, you'd be talking in around the region of 100 millilitres of wine. They say there's about seven uh, glasses of wine in the average bottle. So Mm. you're talking in around 100 millilitres per unit uh, and uh, you need an hour of sleep per unit. Uh, And uh, of course, uh, nobody's going to tell you how many drinks you can have today uh, the simple uh, answer to that is don't drink at all Jacqueline got in touch to, and just wondered mm. if you if you eat does that make a difference well they say it doesn't they say it makes no difference it doesn't matter how much you eat or sleep or any of these other things that you might do whether you're drinking milk before you go out or taking yes. tablets or having a big breakfast none of that seems to make any difference it's got to do with the amount of time in between your last drink and uh, when you do decide to drive and you just need to let it get out of yeah. your system yeah. uh, another listener says I agree with your guest nobody should drive a vehicle when they have drunk taken because it can impair your ability to drive and most importantly react in the case of an emergency there is no point in taking the chance and it's great to see the times are at last changing in Ireland in relation to this. Okay, all right. well something for everybody to think about I suppose especially going into the Christmas season whether uh, you feel safe to drive or not, whether you argue you're sober or not, uh, the question is how much alcohol is in your blood and if you're stopped will you pass a test and if not you'll be automatically disqualified. And the big yeah. focus mm. on the next day driving, isn't there, Michael? Mm. You know, oh, initially yeah. people mm. used to think about just leaving your car when you were out drinking at mm. night, but now mm. it's you have to think twice about taking it out the yeah. next morning. Yeah, absolutely. Right, well, we leave it on that. OK, thanks for that. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Two strikes and you're out. Well, not quite. Uh, Louth County Councillors will be given a third go at uh, adopting uh, the budget uh, for next year after failing to do so a second time last night. We'll talk about this now with Labour's P.O. Smith, Maria Doyle of Fine Gael and Fianna Falls. Emma Coffey, good morning to each of you and thank you for joining us here on the programme this morning. And it is a case of third strike and you're out. Uh, you're looking at uh, the abolishment of Louth County Council P.O. Smith. Yeah, that's a strong possibility. I'd say I'd say the minister might come back and say for us to think about it again. Mm. Uh, I think that's an equal possibility as well. But I mean, the the way the legislation is written, the councils cannot vote against the budget. We must adopt the budget, <clears throat> and that's uh, an anomaly anomaly to some extent because we go there with the best of intentions and. If we don't feel we can actually support a budget, the law tells us that we have to. Mm. Uh, but I don't see people voting for uh, the budget that was put in front of us in the last two occasions. Something's going to have to change. Right, like what? Well, we're going to have to look at uh, the discretionary spend <clears throat> and we're going to have to look at if there's possibilities for uh, eliminating some of that that spend or reducing it further. Uh, so, for example, <clears throat> in relation to economic development and planning, there's about 110,000 there that's allocated towards that section. Now, we're looking for a breakdown in relation to how that money is allocated and and uh, what it's actually used for and what the impact would be if that wasn't uh, voted through. And actually. what do you mean discretionary spend? Money that the executive has at its discretion? Well, what we are told discretionary spend is it's amount, the amount of money that councils can actually move around the various budget departments. And 
we don't fully know what all the discretionary spend is. So, for example... Hard to move it around when you don't know what it is. Absolutely. Mm. And, and this is the problem uh, that... Ex- one of the problems that exists in local government. Councillors who are very sincere in what they want to do uh, make the county and the towns uh, better and the rural areas better. But when you go to really dig into the, the budget and you look at where the money actually is and how it can be allocated to different departments, it's very, very difficult to get that information. Mm. Very difficult. Why? Uh, I think it's got to do with, <clears throat> you know, the executive have plans that they want to see implemented and uh, we have ideas that we'd like to see implemented mm. and there's a gap in communication between the two. And therefore... So, so the executive knows? The executive knows exactly... But, but, but isn't giving you the information? Well, if, if we ask the right questions, but you have to start looking mm. and asking the right questions, and you don't get an answer to a question that you ask. So, for example, if you take the capital budget, there's always money mm. around there in that capital budget that is not allocated to specific projects. And mm. in 2017, there was 30 grand taken to uh, put a rose garden in Dominic's Park. That 30 grand was taken from the capital budget. But there's no councillor in Low County Council knew that there was 30 grand available to be moved around for a mm. project like that. And you could have moved it into the maintenance grant, for example, instead of hearing of people who are without <coughs> heat and repairs to their homes. Yeah, we could have moved We could mm. have moved it around the, the capital budget itself. Mm. Or if okay. there was an excess there, we could have moved it to, to maintenance or, mm. or some other yeah. section okay. of the budget. But I, ta- I, mean, I take it that's one of the sticking points. It's a lovely garden, by the way. I'm just very surprised to hear it cost €30,000. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have yeah. done it a bit cheaper myself for the council if uh, they'd asked me but uh, let's uh, hear from the other councillors Maria Doyle uh, what way did you vote by the way uh, I believe it was 19 to 5 with uh, three abstentions I voted against the budget Michael on both occasions right okay uh, because uh, Fine Gael has to some degree voted in favour John McGahan uh, proposed adopting the budget and he was seconded by Richie Culhan was he not Yes, and, and we don't, uh, you know, we're not uh, putting in place a whip on this issue and I suppose we're voting with our conscience and how we feel about it. And uh, I suppose I agree with myself personally with a lot of what Pio has said there. And in, in, in my opinion, it's about transparency and accountability and, um, and the level of input that we as councillors and as public representatives um, have in the whole budget process. And to, me, to my mind, uh, voting for the budget as it currently stands means voting to increase rates. Um, with Brexit looming, and I think that's a very bad idea. Voting to increase parking charges again with Brexit around the corner in March in both Strahd and Dundalk, uh, or in Dundalk mm-hmm. from 1 euro to 120, and um, no reduction then in, in Drogheda, and I think that's also a bad idea. Which would equalise the rates. Yeah, so. would, um, um, but, uh, so I think that the focus of this budget, as it was put before us, is to increase the burden on, on rates payers um, and not really look. Uh, in in more detail at where we can actually save money. And you believe there is money uh, available to the local authority, but that this information is uh, being withheld from you. Uh, Is it that the executive is trying to pull the wool over your eyes? Well, I'm not sure if if that's their absolute intention, but we certainly feel sort of impotent in the process and that uh, when we do ask questions about uh, particular uh, spends and um, it, it's very difficult to get the exact detail of where that money is going off when we're told it's salary costs. But then, as Pio said, said, when money is required, and we had that example this year in relation to the, mm. the parking bylaws in Drogheda, where 300,000 was required and that was found, mm. that we feel that, oh, well, well, would we have known that money was available 
um, if this issue hadn't hadn't arisen. Yeah. And so we feel that we need to have more input. And that yeah, nothing had to be cut. I mean, it was an inexplicable situation that the council would face this shortfall of 300,000 and wouldn't have to cut anything. No, and they were able to find that money through um, the Irish Public Bodies Insurance. Um, but, you know, would we, have been, would we have been told that money existed so that we could then reallocate it perhaps to housing mm. maintenance or another issue? But I feel that it's, it's extending, uh, it's increasing um, the charges that are being put on people without really looking at other issues. For example, and I know, you know, it, it mightn't be directly related to the budget, but I do think that um, Loud has, has had a very poor record on, um, on debt collection rent arrears and on rates collection and I think that's something that we really um, although it's slightly improved this year in 2018 um, I think it's something that we we really need to take seriously and one I, of the worst councils in the country for rates collections is well it? absolutely yeah. I mean I mean I'm, I was looking uh, recently at our what we call our key performance indicators for 2017 and uh, loud um, our rates collection for 2017 was 75 percent so compared to that to me which is at 92 percent mm. uh, we're well far short of that if you look at um, our rent collection, we are at 73%, uh, sorry, we're at 69%, which is a decrease from 73% in 2015, and me, they're at 89%. Mm. So we're falling short there, and yet we're still being asked to stand over increases in, in- rates and other charges. In- increase the rates on those who are paying them. Uh, let's uh, go to Emma Coffey because it's a matter of what's coming in and what's going out uh, and uh, Peter Savage, uh, your Fianna Fáil councillor, suggested cutting the money that's allocated to the FLA and you supported that. Yes, I did and I'm just going to make the clarification that it was the sponsorship money that was allocated and I, and I said that last night that it wasn't the services on the ground or the logistics organisations that Loud County Council has supported. Uh, we were given a figure by the by the uh, Chief Executive at the first budget meeting that that allocation was in and around 250,000. That was given to the FLA and the FLA is a huge success and well supported and well encouraged and gave total uh, applaudits in regards to the to the attraction not just for Drogheda but for countywide and the investment and the economic payback on it. But the reality of it is, is that, as as my colleagues have stated there, we must pass a budget. Uh, there was f- fi- over five hundred thousand uh, on maintenance, housing maintenance, and house and house and the housing budget. A hundred thousand of that was overrun. We actually have no money. And as you said there, Michael, there's people that have no heating in their houses currently at the moment and are waiting on repairs. So it was suggested by. Um, Peter Savage, that the two hundred and fifty thousand be transferred from the um the he suggested the two hundred and fifty thousand yes to be transferred, and that uh, it be transferred to the housing ma- housing mm. ma- and maintenance budget uh, and what's that two hundred and fifty thousand spent on well, see, the, what we, does sponsorship yeah. provide in other see, words? we uh, now, I, I, and this is the thing it has been called upon to give a breakdown in respect of that, and we have not got a breakdown. It was also called i think on by um, councillor smith's colleague Councillor Bell in relation to costs of staff costs etc on top of that and indeed in the first budget meeting uh, the chief executive did indicate that that 250,000 didn't include staff and costs or the other costs related to running of the flat coal that the Loud County Council had to to give. But did it It print programmes? Did it put flower boxes up? Well see this was was an allocation that was given to the flat committee. Hmm. So the flat committee spent it as they saw fit. Yeah. 
and and that and but that. They spent it well, though, did they not? I am not questioning that the no. amount of it, but okay. it, it, the, the point is, it's in a second year. It, it, the the the, mo- the the reasoning behind it, and I just mm. want to the reasoning behind it was we have a huge shortfall on people who are sitting in houses with leaky roofs and no heating, mm. okay. and we have a budget that hasn't been increased. Um, I didn't. I, I voted against the budget the first time. I abstained last night because I'm still not happy with the budget as it is, but. As stated, we we have an obligation to pass a budget. We cannot reject a budget. And if it's not passed, a minister will appoint a commissioner and that commissioner will make yeah, decisions. We'll make decisions yeah. uh, 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 with the stroke of a pen yeah. in uh, an office outside of uh, the county. Uh, I suppose the issue of the flaws neither here or there no, in that no. it was voted down. Yeah. Uh, P.O. Smith, uh, what's needed to pass this budget? Uh, I mean... You're all painting a, a picture of desperation, uh, one in terms of trying to raise money uh, by whatever means and the other in not knowing what's going on because you're being left in the dark, or at least that's how it sounds, by the executive. Yeah, I think there's two two aspects to this. Number one is that we have to look at across, again, the discretionary spend. And maybe it's like any budget that you have to balance. It may be that there are going to be significant cuts in, in different areas. And I mentioned one of them earlier on in, in terms of economic uh, promotion and development. Mm. That could possibly be one. I mean, we have to get to around two hundred to 400,000. Mm. The second thing, though, is that... But Emma Coffey is right, isn't she, in saying that, uh, you know, there has to be questions about money allocated to flower boxes or rose gardens or whatever else when people are living in houses and they've no heat. Absolutely. But this is what all the councillors are asking, exactly where this money is and where it can be moved around and what it can be uh, uh, given to. Uh, So, for example, I mean, Low County Council has applied for a number of projects to the Open Regeneration Fund. Now, the Westgate uh, Vision has got some money allocated towards that. But there is a match funding that has to be given by the council, 25%. And I think there was about five projects that did not receive funding from local central government. So we had money allocated in the budget to be added to those if they receive money from central government. So can we take that money now and spread it around and mm. use it in a different way? That's what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of days. But equally, not just this government, but successive governments from all parties have got to take local government seriously. We cannot operate in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way where we see successive cuts. From 2014, 19, 19 million was given. 2018, uh, 10 million was mm. given. It just can't happen. I mean, if you look at local uh, our local services, the homeless this year, we're getting allocated 2.3 million from central government. But in order for us to actually carry out our service for the homeless, we have to get 400,000, which we didn't have to get last year from our own budget. The Fempy legislation, the loans... All of that stuff is dragging the council down and next year when we're going to be paying back capital and interest in those loans, the game is over. Mm. Emma Covey, you didn't uh, speak uh, about uh, the flow of information or the information that is not flowing from the executive uh, to the councillors. Are are you of uh, the same impression that, for example, the executive are sitting there saying we've €30,000 to spend on a rose garden, but we're not telling you because you might spend it on something else? No, I'm in full agreement and that's why I didn't say anything on it because I I, I basically I'm in full agreement. There is a lack of transparency and we're being told one thing and being, and being, and you know, then it's been contradicted at later stages. So it's very hard. Like, look, all, all in the council chamber want to do the best for Loud County. 
want to do the best for Loud County. And last year it came close to the wire in the budget scenario. And this year lessons have not been learned. Um, you know, we were indicated that there was cert- that going to be certain spends this year in last year's budget that didn't materialise. And unless those, you know, every we're, we're all we all live in the real world here. Um, you know, and we all want to work together. Do you believe a, a solution will be found? I think P.O. Smith said uh, there would be a solution. I would, I, I, we are always open to solutions, uh, but it has to be a practical solution where there is a quid pro quo. And what I mean by that, by a, an open flow of, of, uh, information. of information. Yeah. And, and, and look, the executive are here to basically provide a service to the citizens of Laos as, as, we as councillors are representing the citizens of Loud in that chamber. We are the elective representatives. So we all have a common goal, but sometimes that gets lost in translation. Um, and if it's a matter of, you know, if there was a bit more openness and a bit more transparency, my fear is now that we're in a situation where, mm. where it appears that both sides are now have been entrenched, so to speak. Yeah, it's, and, it's and, an odd situation. Uh, let me. Let yeah, me, and, yeah, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's an us and them, which shouldn't appear. We're right. all on the same team. Uh, and uh, for people uh, who are just joining us, uh, us, as you see it, are the political representatives, uh, the uh, uh, elected representatives, and them are the executive uh, and uh, that's the impression I'm getting from the cross-party representation that we have on the programme today. Maria Doyle, uh, do you believe it's possible uh, to bridge the gap between the political representatives and the bureaucrats? Well, I think it is. I mean, we had tried, I mean, this, as, as you mentioned earlier, this issue arose last year and as part of the difficulties we had last year, we did set up a, a system, a mediator was brought in to, or a facilitator to try and do that I mean, really, it's fallen short of what we'd hoped uh, it would achieve, and it probably hasn't been successful, and I don't think there has been adequate changes. And I think it's not just an issue of communication, but in terms of this particular budget, we need to ensure, if we're going to move on from the, the, the position we are at the moment, that any amendments or any uh, proposals that councillors put forward are taken seriously. And if I just give one example, and I hope P.O. doesn't mind me using him as an example, but at our first budget meeting, he suggested that we uh, we cut, now it's only small money, it's €5,000 for town twinning, that we cut that for this year since we're in such a precarious position and uh, just for one year and use that money elsewhere. And uh, that was not acceptable to, to the executive. So any proposals, it's my opinion that mm. when proposals are put forward, they're not taken seriously. I used to, you know, uh, send in proposals regularly and didn't get a reply. So this year I, I, I didn't make any written pr- proposals prior to the budget because I wasn't even getting uh, replies in previous years. But I think on Sunday, when we have our meeting on Sunday evening, that if amendments are tabled, I think we should all should really, really look hard at those amendments and see what we could do to get past the position that we're currently in. OK. Did anybody uh, ask what the €35,000 spent on? I can't get that out of my head. Uh, thinking of a, a rose garden, I mean, you'll buy a rose bush for about a tenner. <coughs> a hundred rose bushes would cost you a €1,000, in other words. The difficulty is, Michael, is that when we ask these questions, and they are tables and they are asked, we don't get answers. And people, you know, 200 rose bushes. I I don't know. I'd say there's maybe 100, but let's say there was 200 rose bushes. That'd be 2,000 euro. A bit of roundup to clear the grass. Uh, A digger for half a day. How much would that cost? A couple of hundred, 500, let's say, to be extreme. You know, Mm -hmm. surely it could have been done for less than Mm 5,000. I mean, I think. In reality, if you ask me to do it, I, I could probably do it for 2000 mm. 
There you go, Michael. You must be some gardener. There's not much. I mean, especially if you had a, a digger, there's not much to put no, in a, a rose I, but, garden. But, I mean, these are the ty- as I say, that's one example that, that Pio has, has raised. Mm. And another, ju- just, to, just to explain to people who are listening, this is in a park on a flat piece of ground, which was grass. Perfectly uh, perfect site, very, very easily done. Clear out the grass, dig up the ground, put in the rose bushes. Mm-hmm. Ten or ago, a hundred bushes, a thousand euro. Where does thirty five thousand euro go? That's a good question. <clears throat> That's a good question. And I mean, like this is the dilemma that we all face in relation to various aspects of, of the budgetary process. Uh, we ask questions, we do get an answer as in mm. thirty five thousand, uh, approximately thirty thousand. Uh, so the breakdown of that then mm. uh, is another issue and like even when you see some of the headlines in the budget uh, agenda mm. like you can see economic development promotion 110,000 I mean I don't, I don't mean to moan but I was up before 6 o'clock this morning to come into work mm. and my taxes are going to that mm. oh absolutely yeah and, and Michael yeah. if I can I just come mm. in on that because I do think it is an issue um, you know if we're being asked to increase rates increase parking charges mm. and so on that we need to look at our costs I mean, if you take the repair and maintenance of local authority housing in Louth, we are the second uh, highest average cost in the country at 1,000, uh, over 1,600 per house, where Mead is, runs at a rate of 770. So in Louth, it's costing us more than double to repair our local authority housing than it is in Mead. So we really, these are the issues. Mm. What, you know, where are we spending our money? Can we do it better? Okay, listen, I have to leave there. We're over time, actually, but thank you, each of you, for joining us this morning. Uh, that's uh, three Loud County Councillors, P.O. Smith of uh, the Labour Party, Maria Doyle of Fine Gael, and Emma Coffey of Fianna Fáil. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Did you know there's only 26 sleeps until Santa arrives? Well, I have to say, it's not something that would have been on my radar because unfortunately we're all too old in my house for me to pay attention. I do know that that's the case because Mary Lou MacDonald, the Sinn Féin president, told the Taoiseach yesterday that there were 27 sleeps until Santa arrives. The point she was making was that this puts pressure on a lot of parents who have to borrow money coming up to Christmas and in some circumstances, they'll resort to borrowing from moneylenders. Many times, these are unlicensed moneylenders who charge huge amounts in interest. And then there's the licensed moneylenders, and this is the issue that has caught a lot of attention as raised in the doll yesterday by Mary Lou MacDonald because she made reference to the 39th licensed moneylender in this country. The central bank has given a license to Amigo loans to lend money out to people at a rate of up to 49%. She referenced a study by UCC which has suggested that there should be a cap put on these interest rates and the Taoiseach has said that this will be considered. Let's talk about this now with uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance in Shannon Aaron, Senator Rose Conway-Walsh. A very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, morning, I'm not, Mikey. Uh, I'm not sure if this came as a, a surprise to you but that's a, a, an interest rate uh, that would seem to be beyond belief. 49%, almost 50%. I think what's difficult about it is the fact that central bank um, seem to be out of touch with what's happening and obviously the Department of Finance. Um, So the fact that they got approved, so they got granted the license, I think has focused attention on it again. And obviously because it's this time of year and it's a time of year that families are under severe pressure with the extra expenditure of Christmas. And they give this money out to people who can't get loans from anywhere else. I mean, that's the objective of a company like this. 
Well, the objective of them is obviously with the rates they're charging, 49.5% uh, is to maximise their profits. And now they have been allowed in here. It's, it's not to help out families. Um, you know, families um, who are in difficulty at this time of the year, I think what the central bank should be doing is pointing those families towards the credit unions. The credit unions have served this country really well and have served many families up and down this country. Um, you know, they have different rates. They have, you know, they're personally known, they're embedded within their communities and they have different uh, rates they can charge. And I think what's difficult as well is that, you know, obviously we don't have a cap in this country. We have a cap for credit unions, mm. which allows them to charge um, no more than 1% per month. But we don't have a cap uh, for anybody else. And that's why in 2013, uh, we in the Sinn Féin party brought forward the, the bill to cap uh, to cap the rates. But that was declined by government. In fairness, so it was supported by Fianna Fáil. But we will be relaunching that. But it made no sense at the time, even in 2013, for the government not to accept that. They, 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 these people just hand out money. Uh, €10,000 within 24 hours, no guarantor, no credit scores. They hand it out, but then when they when they want to get it back, I mean, we know that interest rates, I mean, they can charge interest rates of up to 187%. And then when you add on all the, the collection charges and everything with that, there's extortionate rates. But I mean, 49.5% mm. is extortionate in itself. If you're looking at a loan of, say, you know, 5,000 euro over five years, with a credit union, you would pay back something, I think, like five 600 euro in interest. But uh, with uh, the likes of Amigo loans, you're looking at uh, charges of uh, over three thousand euro, and, and this is money that uh, that people. And they'll offer these pay. loans to people who have bad credit, and as a, a result of that, may not be able to get a loan from a credit union. That's right. Uh, you're right, Michael. But within the credit union, even in, in itself, they have like the PNC loans that people who don't have a a good credit record, that they can work with them in building up their their credit uh, reputation, if you like. And we have to remember, coming through the recession here, there are many people who are in, uh, you know, are in a a bad place in terms of their their credit worthiness through no fault of their own. Many, many people lost their jobs. And Mm. again, it goes back to the banks. I mean, so with the banks being bailed out for 60, 67 billion at the time, that had an impact and a very, very severe impact on Irish society and on many of those families who find themselves in the position now that if they want to borrow money that they cannot borrow it uh, through a main lender. I think it's a major mistake of the central bank and it really is. We've had enough of the vulture funds, Mm. you know, over the last months and we'll see that uh, working itself through again in the coming months. But how how do you determine whether it is or not? Is it the business of politicians uh, to make conclusions of that sort? Uh, is it the business of uh, Sinn Féin or Fine Gael for that matter? I mean, the Taoiseach was saying yesterday we've an independent system of regulation for reasons that all of us are acutely aware of in this country, those of us uh, who've uh, lived through the crash and uh, the central bank is the regulator. Central Bank is a regulator, but I mean, we have to remember, like the vulture funds, they have an in and out to the Department of Finance all of the time. They refuse to come before the Finance uh, Committee. And I think that is, is, is desperately wrong. But they do that because they have a close relationship with government. But the government are there to protect citizens, and they need to protect them in this instance as well. The Central so Bank doesn't come before the Finance Committee. 
Oh, the central bank certainly does. Oh, I'm but sorry. Not the, but not the vulture fund. Oh, right, okay. Uh, but, mm-hmm. And I know this will be a topic that obviously we will be raising within the Finance Committee again. Mm-hmm. But immediately what we will be doing is relaunching the legislation that we tried to bring forward in 2013 to protect the most vulnerable um, um, citizens in our society that will be affected by this. And we have to remember, Michael, as well, you know, we have all of this in terms of, you know, the country is doing so well with such mm-hmm. high employment and all that but if you ask Vincent de Paul or you ask the Capuchin centres or any of those centres that are trying to pick up the slack where people are being pushed more and more into poverty, and that just doesn't mean people who don't have a job. It means people who have a job but don't have enough to meet their everyday expenses, whether that be their high rents, their high mortgages, or, or, uh, or the, just the general cost of living. We have on average here 25% higher cost of living than other European countries. So you have all of these people that are working, many of them day and night, but still don't have enough to pay the bills. And if they haven't, on top of that, if they don't have uh, a credit rating or a proper Mm. credit worthiness, then they find themselves in a situation where they're vulnerable to the likes. Well, that's the thing. It's the people who can least afford to take out these loans who are applying and getting these loans uh, because uh, if you could get a loan anywhere else and if you were looking to borrow money, I'm sure you'd go anywhere else than Amigo Loans or these other 39 moneylenders who are charging these rates. We have to stress that they're not doing anything wrong. They are licensed by the central bank and they're perfectly legal and legitimate. Uh, What about the decision that these people who take out the loans, uh, who can't afford to take out the loans, are, are making? Are, are they not entitled to make that choice, even if it's the wrong choice? If it's their choice, are they not entitled to make that choice? Of course they're entitled to make the choice, but I think they don't always have full information on terms of what they have to pay back and somebody to sit down with them and to work out exactly what it'll mean. Now, they say in these instances as well where they're regulated that you can have, or that you need to have a guarantor. So it actually may mean that you end up with two families in difficulty because, again, the guarantors may not have the full information. And that's the difference, Michael, between going in and sitting down with your credit union mm. and getting the full information, talking to another human being face-to-face. This is what it will mean for you, looking out, you know, can you afford this? Can you afford it over the coming months? How much can you afford? And this is the way that we can work with you. It's a whole different ball game when you're dealing with money lenders on this scale. All right, we have to leave it there because we're over time. But thank you indeed for your time and for joining us on the programme today. Senator Rose Conway Walsh is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance in Shannadaran. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, Meath County Councillor has taken to social media to say uh, that he is upset. Finnegale's No French says this is because he was threatened and intimidated by somebody on the phone to him. And Noel French is on the phone to us. Good morning to you and thanks, Noel, for joining us. What happened? Um, just uh, somebody phoned me and uh, I was sort of left upset uh, and I felt threatened and intimidated. Uh, It was just something to do with the council. Uh, I'm prepared to debate with anybody or uh, and talk to anybody and respect their views even if they disagree with me but uh, uh, even if they're misguided or wrong uh, the person has total right to um, express those views but uh, a line is crossed uh, when disagreement turns to intimidation mm. and I just didn't like it. Were you physically threatened or what? 
Uh, no, it was my good name and it was fear for my good name uh, that motivated my speaking out and I wanted to put it on out on record there in case uh, something did happen to my good name, in case somebody did uh, do something to try and, uh, you know, uh, do something on social media and, you know, social media like is sort of can be turbocharged uh, with the speed and, yeah. and anonymity of social media and people can say a lot of stuff on social media and get away with it. Yeah, but they were going to say something about you that wasn't true, was it? Again, uh, 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 the person was clever enough uh, in not to uh, say anything I could take to the Gardaí, mm. uh, but uh, uh, very clever enough indeed, uh, uh, you know, to leave me intimidated and, and feeling threatened. Uh, um, I think that was the objective of the phone call. Uh, um, you know, that person might deny it, but uh, uh, I think that was the objective. Right, uh, but uh, there was no physical threat to you uh, or your family. Uh, no, 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 thankfully, this was thankfully not. And mm-hmm. I'm very lucky. Uh, my uh, colleagues uh, on the council from my own party and from other parties mm. uh, were very quick and uh, came in and offered uh, me uh, their support, as did many friends on, on, on Facebook. Mm. Uh, I don't have a problem with unfair uh, criticism or abuse on Facebook uh, um, uh, but uh, this was actually in a phone call so uh, um, it was very it was personal Right uh, and reputational and reputational and uh, it uh, um, uh, with the way media is at, at the moment uh, you know and particularly social media anything can be said and people will believe anything uh, um, I don't believe I've done uh, anything too wrong in my life mm. uh, but uh, people can interpret things in, in different ways and uh, um, I do know there is one very horrible thing up uh, uh, on a Facebook post about me from a few years ago uh, um, and I did my best to get uh, that taken down and I got it taken down in lots of places but not uh, unfortunately uh, every every place. So all I have is my good name, uh, Michael. Yes, my family hugely important to me as well, but uh, and myself. But we weren't threatened. But my good name was right. Uh, and what was the council issue that this person? I'm had afraid I can't because okay. if I do, if I if I mention the council issue, mm. uh, the person will be identified. And uh, I was actually trying to stay out of uh, the issue as much as possible. Sometimes uh, at council level, uh, you might not agree with something, but uh, somebody else is in favour of it or the council is in favour of it. So uh, you might just stay quiet. So I was trying to stay quiet on, 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 on this issue and uh, not not be drawn into it. All right, and we did speak to you in the last few days about an issue relating to the council, and you made a point of saying that it wasn't related to that uh, when uh, you took to social media. Ab- absolutely, yes. It is, it, is, it is in no way related to Narconon or Scientology. Um, uh, I have had dealings with people in Narconon and Scientology, mm. and 
I have treated them with respect and they have treated me with respect. So, as normal people would yeah, do. It's all very cloak and dagger, and uh, I, I know you're being cautious. And uh, Well, I can't yeah. very well reveal things, can I? And uh, you did the, ask the, me the, on, and oh, yes, but just I the, just did put that up because I did want a marker down there in case this person did uh, do something. And right. uh, I, I'm certainly not. Uh, looking for publicity for it, Michael. Okay, uh, does, do, does the threat it. still stand as far as you're concerned, though? Uh, um, this, this, is, this, uh, this was the difficulty of uh, ascertaining from the person uh, any any information that I could take to the Gardaí, and uh, I couldn't. So uh, uh, the person was going to talk around the circles, mm. Uh, and not give me definitive information that I could take anywhere. Okay. Uh, so that was the difficulty with it as well. As I say, if the person straightforward threatened me, uh, um, I would go straight back to them. But this was clever. Okay. We'll, you know, so, and yeah. thank God I'm strong enough uh, to, to stand it uh, and uh, have a good supportive community. Okay, Noel, I have to leave there. I've run out of time. Thanks indeed uh, for joining us this morning. That's uh, Fine Gael Councillor Noel French, who brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 